Over the last few Sundays together, we have been steadily working our way through John's Gospel, and this morning we come to John chapter 8, verses 31 to 41. And we read in this passage before us, we see a pattern that has been emerging over the last few weeks, when Jesus begins to teach or has an engaged conversation with an individual, he will seek to take them to a deeper level in their understanding and in their appreciation of who God is and how he interacts with them. And sometimes they misinterpret it. They think either physically, when he's speaking spiritually. In this case, they're thinking historically, when he's speaking spiritually. So John chapter 8 Verse 31. To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you really are my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Amen, and we trust that God will bless to us this reading from his holy word. Several years ago I visited New York City, And I was eager to be there and see all that New York had to offer. And if you've ever visited the city, there is so much to see and do. And I thoroughly enjoyed the whole New York experience for about four days. Then I was ready to come home again. And it is absolutely spectacular. One of the places I wanted to see was the Empire State Building and travel to the top and walk out onto the observation deck and see southern Manhattan and the Statue of Liberty and look across the city. And it was a wonderful experience. Next, we traveled to southern Manhattan to go and see the Statue of Liberty and then Ellis Island. Ellis Island, of course, is known as a major entry point for immigrants into the U.S. back in the 20s, 30s, 40s, and even into the 50s in some occasions. And when you get to Ellis Island, there is a spectacular museum there, and there's a memorial wall. And you can see the names of the thousands, hundreds of thousands of people who have registered and come in through Ellis Island. And there I was. Richard Gibbons came in 1922. And so clearly I'm a lot older than you think I am. And so after Ellis Island, we Fifth Avenue, Times Square, we had a wonderful time. And the reason I'm sharing that with you this morning is this. That sometimes people can find themselves falling into the temptation to treat a relationship with God, faith, prayer. We can treat it almost like a tourist. Quickly moving from one new experience to another, to another. Almost like going into a museum, wandering from one artifact to the other, reading the little plaque, enjoying it, learning a little, listening to the guide, then getting back out onto the bus for the next new experience. And when you adopt that sort of mindset, there comes with it a casual 
indifference. You simply become an observer. You have a demand for the immediate and the casual. We don't really have time, so just please give us the high points. But when Jesus speaks to this group of people who had a Jewish background, in fact, the opening verse says, and they believed him, he begins to teach them what discipleship needs to look like. Because there's nothing about discipleship that is casual observer. There's nothing about, I only have time for the high points. There's nothing about the immediate and the casual Discipleship calls for so much more than that. And notice how the passage begins. To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you really are my disciples. If you hold to my teaching. In other words, listen, engage, take these lessons Apply them to your life. Be growing in your faith. Live it out in a manner that's genuine and authentic. That's what's going on here. If you hold to my teaching, nothing casual, nothing about simply being an observer, but the very opposite. In other words, put it into practice. Live out your faith each day. That's what he's talking about here. Then he adds what has become some of the best-known words in any gospel. And he adds, then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Now let's pause there for just a second. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. Now we live in a 21st century cultural context. And in the 21st century, truth is no longer what it used to be. Sometimes you will hear teens and young adults. Sometimes you'll see it on Facebook or a movie on Netflix and a newspaper or a website. And someone will be talking about truth. And someone will push back and say, it may be true for you, but it's not true for me. Now, I was brought up to believe something was either true or it wasn't. You didn't get to determine whether it was true or not. It either was true or it was not. And today we live in a cultural context where truth is looked at with suspicion and caution and skepticism. In fact, back in 2016, the Oxford English Dictionary included for the first time the phrase post-truth. When the editors were interviewed by Time magazine, this is what they said. Their choice reflects a year dominated by highly charged political and social discourse, fueled by the rise of social media as a news source and a growing distrust of facts offered up by the establishment. Post-truth as a concept has been finding its linguistic footing for some time. It may become a defining word of our time. It may become the defining word of our time. Post-truth. The popular understanding of truth, not only is it treated with skepticism, cynicism and suspicion, the argument is this, that whenever someone says, I have the truth, I know the truth, 
you are then charged with imposing it on others. And imposing it on others means you are robbing them from the freedom to choose whatever truth means to them. That's what's going on. Do we live in a world where you get to take or decide, rather, what truth is or what truth is not? In academia and colleges and universities, teenagers, young adults, are taught there are no absolutes today. There are no moral standards. You define for yourself what truth is and what truth isn't. And then those college students go on to postgraduate studies and then go and work for a large financial institution, end up on Wall Street. They misbehave and we put them in prison for acting out what they've always been taught. There is no such thing as absolutes. Stealing is an absolute. Murder is an absolute. Child abuse is an absolute. There are moral truths and spiritual values that the Scripture teaches us. And we hold on to them as Christian people. We apply them to our lives. We seek to live them out. And that means pushing back at times against the dominant culture. Just over a year ago, a colleague sent me a link to a video clip on YouTube. And it was a debate about a Christian talking about the validity, value, and significance of faith in a 21st century culture. And at the end of the lecture, there was a time for questions, and several questions came up. And almost towards the end, not quite the last question, but almost the last question, a young man stood up and said that he was studying philosophy, and he had enjoyed the talk, but he found it hard to understand how anyone could be a Christian today because everything is meaningless. And then the man who was presenting his case said, everything is not meaningless. And the student said, yes, it is. And he said, no, it's not. Yes, it is. No, it's not. And the speaker then said, please forgive me. I'm teasing you a little here. Because when you say everything is meaningless, then you ask a question, I assume that you believe your question is meaningful. Do you see the point? It is self-contradictory. It's an oxymoron right there. And you can almost see the young man kind of looking a little skeptical and standing back and folding his arms, and it was repeated to him, and he sat down. And you can imagine him thinking, wait a minute, if everything is meaningless, what's going on here? Because that's what he'd been taught. Everything was meaningless. And here is Jesus saying to this group, who, and the passage is clear, who had believed in him, and he's moving them to the next level, and he says, if you hold to my teaching, you really are my disciples. In other words, if you're living out your faith, if you are demonstrating authenticity and credibility, then you are my disciples. Because Jesus was convinced, and of course we are in turn, that authenticity and credibility matter. With Christian belief comes Christian behavior. Your walk must 
equal your talk. It is not enough just to talk a good game. You have to live it out day by day by day. And we know at times that is challenging and hard as a Christian. It is. And yet that's what we're called to. And Jesus says to them, then, then, do you see it? Once you start living out your faith, Once you start understanding this is the real deal, once you grasp the enormity of a deep, abiding, intimate relationship with God, then you shall know the truth. Then you're going deeper in your faith, and it shall set you free. And then, of course, his listeners push back a little, and they answer him, We are Abraham's descendants, and have never been slaves to anyone. How can you say we shall be set free? They're thinking historically, their heritage, their background as a race of people, and Jesus is speaking spiritually. And notice where he goes next. He says to them, Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now what does he mean by that? Let me see if I can illustrate. I shared this illustration with you three or four years ago, but it seemed appropriate again this morning. And when you first read it, it's fairly straightforward. Nothing rhymes with orange. And you think that's correct. Nothing does rhyme with orange. Or or nothing rhymes with orange, rather. And then false. Nothing in orange do not rhyme. Okay, it's going to take a second, but you'll get there. Just let it sink in. Look at it again. Nothing rhymes with orange. False. Nothing in orange do not rhyme. And it takes that extra second to put in this context what we first thought it meant. It doesn't. In fact, it means something else. And that's exactly where Jesus is going here. When he says, whenever we sin, we become a slave to sin. What he means by that is this, and you're educated enough in biblical studies to know this, that when sin gets hold of a life, it is at first appealing, it's attractive, it's drawing you into its web. And it's telling you that sin is no big deal and you can choose to determine whether something's a sin for yourself or not and you can choose to determine if it's true for you or not true for you. And so it goes on. And sin draws you in further and further and further until you discover, usually too late, that not only is it attractive, appealing and enticing, but it is also dark and distasteful, and deceptive, and utterly enslaving, utterly enslaving. And we consistently underestimate, how often have we said it, the power, significance, and gravitas of sin. It is that ugly. It is that bad. We see it in domestic violence. We see it in human trafficking. We see it in alcohol and drug addiction. We see it in child abuse. We see it in fractured and damaged lives. It is everywhere. That's how powerful it actually is. And that's why Jesus says, I tell you the truth, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. And here is another complicating factor. 
Because we are tempted to believe that sin is something we do to someone else. And it often is that. But sin is so deceitful, we forget what it does to us. We forget that it deadens the heart and mind and soul. We forget its debilitating power. We forget that it is shrinking the soul of the individual. It is withdrawing from us the goodness and grace of God. It is limiting us to sin and its atmosphere itself. And the significance and power and pathology of sin damages us every bit as much as the person we are sinning against. That's the raw power and destructive pathology of sin. It's awful. That's why he came to the cross to defeat it. It's that important. That's what's going on here. And so he's explaining to them how it affects and debilitates and holds us in bondage. That's what's going on. And notice where he goes next. After they say, we're descendants of Abraham. We've never been a slave to anyone. I think they forgot about the the days in Exodus when they were enslaved in Egypt. But anyway, it's there. And he says, I tell you the truth. Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. And then he goes on. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family. But a son belongs to a father. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. You see the point he's making? He's saying if the love and grace of God sets you free, you become part of the family. He breaks the power. He cancels that sin. He draws us into relationship with himself. And he doesn't only say your sin is forgiven. He then gives to you the indwelling of his spirit. That enables us to move forward in our relationship with him. And here is what I think is the greatest single secret of the gospel. That once you come to him and you surrender your heart and life and soul to him. And once you seek his cleansing power, you never want to go back to that which you once found attractive. It becomes the very opposite. You no longer want to be there. You're given a new heart, new mind, new soul, motivation, new desire. You are now in a relationship with God. And the power of God is part and parcel of your life. Now that doesn't mean that we are perfect people. It doesn't mean we'll never sin again. But sin no longer dominates and rules and reigns in our life. That's what he's saying. Because the love of the Son of God sets you free. That's what's going on here. So So when we submit and surrender to his rule and reign, everything changes. Earlier I mentioned that We live in a 21st century cultural context. And I described a little of the moral and spiritual standards of our cultural context. And they tell us and dictate to us that there are no absolutes, there are no moral standards, that autonomy in sexual ethics, novelty, Moral and spiritual standards. 
that's the way to go. And yet, and yet, when it's practiced, when it's practiced in that manner, it often ends up being the shallowest of all experiences because there's no commitment, there's no love, there's no faithfulness, there's no long term and those deep, intimate areas of our life and it's left empty. And so this morning you may be saying, okay, Richard, I think I'm with you. I think I see what the passage is saying and I understand the enslaving nature of sin, I think. I also understand the emancipation of the love and grace of God and how he brings that into our lives. But how do I now apply these words to my life this week? How do I live them out? Give me something to take home. Well, number one, and you begin to live out your faith in an authentic, credible manner, and you take a stand on moral and spiritual issues, the society and culture around us is going to label you as odd, narrow-minded, archaic, primitive in your beliefs with nothing to offer a 21st century society. And how do you begin to push back? Well, you push back by living for Christ each day. Not as a tourist with a mild interest in religious issues, but as a disciple with a focus on honesty and standing up for character and transparency and holiness and righteousness of living out your faith day by day by day in your neighborhood and among your family and friends, in your community, in our city, praying for our city, seeking to influence the culture rather than the culture impacting and influencing us. I've told you this before, but again, it seems appropriate this morning. Some people are thermometers. They merely register what is around them. If the situation is tight and pressurized, they register tension and irritability. If it's stormy, they register worry and fear. If it's calm and quiet and comfortable, they register relaxation and peacefulness. Others, however, are more like thermostats. They regulate the atmosphere. They are the mature change agents who never let the situation dictate to them. I first came across this, I'm sure I told you at the time, in Chuck Swindoll's book, Laugh Again. It's a very helpful book. And that's exactly what he's talking about. That's what Jesus is summarizing for us here. If you know the truth, you shall be free indeed. Free to live with him, equipped by him, resourced by him, given the power of the Holy Spirit by him. How often have we said in the last four or five years that the same moral and supernatural power that brought Christ back from the dead now lives in us lives in ours, and when we follow his teaching, then what? Then we are his disciples. Then we are set free to live for Christ. That's exactly what's happening here. And then from time to time, 
not only in our own lives, but in our communities and in our state and in our nation. And from time to time, there comes a situation where, as Christian people, we take a stance. We should not be hesitant to take a stance on Christian moral and ethical values. We should never be strident or aggressive, but speak with courtesy and gentleness and respect, but nonetheless take a stand. And when we take that stand and speak into that culture, that is an important moment. And we say to our culture and our society, there is a better way. We change the narrative. We talk of love and grace and transformation and freedom. Freedom from the addiction of sin and all that comes with it. And when we begin to demonstrate in our own lives And when we show what it means to be forward-thinking, to be emancipated from the tranquilizing addiction of situational ethics and the moribund impotence of cultural appeasement, then we're living out our faith. Then we're taking a stand for Christian principles. And we should take a stand for those principles. Please hear me. We have a voice and we have a choice. And it is, we are never called to sit down. We are never called to just let sexual ethics pass. And when we stand for the sanctity of life, and when we stand for marriage, and when we stand for honesty and transparency and righteousness and character and holiness, the culture takes note. They would long for us to sit down and allow them to get on with their own standards of truth, whatever that may be. But it's our job to stand firmly and speak into a culture and speak into a society. And dare I say this, the spiritual heartbeat of this nation is longing for spiritual standards and moral truth. And they are eager to see genuine, heartfelt, passionate lives that model the reality of life and its fullness. That's what's going on. And how do we do it? Do we march on Washington? Do we write to our senators or our representatives? We can, but the more effective way is to prayerfully, graciously serve on the PTA and hold Christian standards. It's to be involved in education and health service. It's to be involved in the political process. It is to take an active role in manufacturing and industry and finance and retail and to live out our faith. That's what we're called to. Not tourism with a casual religious observance, but actually, day by day by day, living out our faith. Will we be successful? I hope so. Will we be willing to pay the price? I hope so, because we know what it means to be able to say we know the truth, and the truth has set us free. And to us, it is absolutely amazing. 
amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Grace has brought us safe this far, and grace will see us home. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this passage of Scripture this morning, and thank you for its challenge and its comfort, and also its enabling grace. Allow us, please, this week to live for you, fully surrendered and submitted in all aspects of our life. Father, hear our heartfelt passion for our families, our neighborhoods, our cities, our state, and our nation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.